0: Well, today we are continuing on in our sermon series where we are working our way through the elements, through the liturgy of our service, though the basic liturgy that we follow is not new to church history. My presumption is that it is new to many of you. In fact, some of you might still be getting used to the way that we do church, even especially the teenagers, and they feel somewhat weird, somewhat strange, to which I say, good, Good. That's intentional. That means we're headed in the right direction. We, one of the virtues of the Reformation was semper reformanda, which means ongoing reformation. We're always looking to reform as Christians. We're always looking to mature more into the image of Christ according to His Word. And more often than not, maturity looks like going back to the ancient path. And so that is what we are looking to do. Which means it takes work. Liturgy means the work of the people. As Pastor Yuri Brito said, worshiping takes work, it's hard, but it is the right kind of hard. It is the good burn in our spiritual muscles. So, an important part of maturing on purpose as a church is understanding the why behind what we're doing. And to understand the why of our liturgy, we first have to get clarity on the what of the service, what is actually happening on the Lord's Day service. And our conviction from Scripture is that when the saints gather on the Lord's Day, a good biblical way to understand what's happening can be surmised in the language of covenant renewal. Now, this is week four in our series, so I won't unpack the meaning of that at length. Again, I commend the previous sermons to you if you are new or if you missed those to to get caught up. But I'll just borrow a pithy, helpful phrase from Pastor Kevin DeYoung to explain what the service is. He says, every Sunday, we come to worship our covenant-making God, to be reminded of his covenant promises, and then once again renew our covenant commitment. The deepest and richest and most biblical worship will have a liturgy that reflects these ancient and continuing realities. And to be clear, uh, this series is in no way meant to be an indictment on how others are doing it. It's an explanation on why we're doing what we're doing. And we say yes and amen to to Pastor DeYoung. Furthermore, in the flow of our liturgy, as we have already discussed, we are actually every week rehearsing the gospel story. So covenant renewal worship follows the basic uh, pattern of call, confession, and cleansing. You'll see this through the liturgy if you have it in front of you. Call, confession, and cleansing, consecration, communion, and then commissioning. And this is the gospel, played out in miniature, on purpose, every week. Again, the first two weeks of our series was introductory, so we're building upon these foundations. Last week, we then looked at the first element in our liturgy, namely the call to worship. And we saw that just as commoners would not presume to just pop in at the queen's coronation, well, how much more when we enter the throne room of God should we come at his call? So starting with the call sets the tone of the entire service. It reminds us of the privilege of worship, and of the graciousness of our God to call us, yes, even us, and not to just invite us, to say he is earnestly desired to meet with us. And as we saw from Hebrews 12, Christian worship happens. The sanctuary of Christian worship is Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, the new Jerusalem, not the earthly Jerusalem. And so we are caught up into the heavenly sanctuary even now as we enter in to that worship service. And today we will consider the second basic part of the service, the second element in our liturgy, namely the confession of sin and then the cleansing of God. And the heart of the covenant renewal service. So there's five elements, kind of brackets, call and commission, the heart is the middle three of confession, consecration, and communion, and these follow the sacrificial pattern that the Lord laid down for worship in the tabernacle in Leviticus. See, when the people of Israel first began what we might call corporate worship service as a covenant people, God gave them a certain liturgy that they were to follow— after he called them into his presence. And it centered around the specific offerings or the specific sacrifices that they were to bring. And so, conf- uh, confession and consecration and communion, so that's the middle three of our liturgy, parallel the sin offering and the ascension or burnt offering and the peace offering. Whenever those sacrifices are mentioned in the Old Testament, you see them a lot in Leviticus, they're mentioned in that order, and there's a reason. It's because there is a flow, there is a drama, there is a fitting narrative arc to those sacrifices as we enter further up and further in into the worship of God. So Leviticus 9 is probably the clearest place that we see this. So if you would, go ahead and open up to Leviticus chapter 9 so you can see this in the text for yourself. Maybe a while since you've been to Leviticus, it'll be good to blow the dust off there. And I want to take a minute to to just lay a foundation for these next three weeks in our series because we will be referring back to Leviticus 9 where we see this. Leviticus 9, so for quick context, this comes right after the Lord consecrates Aaron and his sons to the priesthood. So Levit- Le- Leviticus 8 is the consecration and the establishment of the priesthood. They are the priests. They stand in between God and the people as they minister. And now one of their first tasks that the Lord gives them is to explain to the people how they are to meet with God, not unlike what we're doing in this series. The Lord wants the people of Israel to know that He sets the liturgy, not them. They come on His terms, not their own. So Leviticus 9, I'll begin in verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf, for a sin offering, and a ram for an ascension or burnt offering. Yours probably says burnt ascension is a far superior translation. That's literally what the Hebrew word means, and that's what's important about the sacrifice is it's ascending, but I'm already in next week's sermon, so I'll stop there. Both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And now picking up in verse 3, so he said that to Aaron and his sons, and now say to the people of Israel, so say to the congregation, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old, without blemish, for an ascension offering, and an ox and a ram for a peace offering to sacrifice before the Lord. So these are the sacrifices and the order that God required in the service. And as the text goes on, we see this Playing out the people heeding that instruction and bringing the sacrifices, and then Aaron performing the slaughtering of these sacrifices. And now skip down to verse 22, verse 22 of Leviticus 9. This is after all of that. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and he blessed them. So that's a benediction. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the ascension offering and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. So this is what we want. We want the glory of the Lord to appear to us. And this was the way the Lord established for when his people came to meet with him. Now, thanks be to God, Christ was the final blood sacrifice, the final animal sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember last week when we saw in Hebrews how the writer of Hebrews is endeavoring to show the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. Don't abandon Christ. It's so much better here. Well, this is one of the ways it's, it's so much better. We don't have to do all of that sacrifice anymore, all of that bloody mess just to worship God so the people wouldn't forget how serious sin really is. We, do, we don't do that anymore. However, as we discussed a few weeks back, we go too far, we would argue, if we abandon these sacrificial categories. That's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Some Christians believe that there isn't much in the New Testament about the the how of worship because God was now more cool with us doing whatever we wanted. We would say that one of the reasons there's so little about worship in the New Testament is because there's so much about worship in the Old Testament that was never just meant to be jettisoned. It was now understood in light of Christ. And the New Testament still speaks of Christian worship in sacrificial categories. Romans 12, present your body as a living sacrifice, for this is your spiritual worship now. Or Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. We said this a couple weeks ago. It's worth repeating. Listen to this. Through Christ, so, so through Christ now, not bulls and goats, through Christ, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge Christ's name. And don't neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Or we could think of the Apostle Paul. I'm more than willing to be poured out as a drink offering on top of the altar of your faith. Now, if we're going to read the scriptures well, we must understand, and especially the New Testament, we must understand that whenever this sacrificial language is used in the New Testament, it's like the author put in a hyperlink. So I got this metaphor from Rich Lusk, so I'm totally stealing it, just so you know, but it's helpful. So you remember what a hyperlink is, right? So that's there, and then you click it, and it takes you back to somewhere else. It takes you somewhere. Well, that's what Old Testament quotes in the New Testament are like hyperlinks, where you should go back there and understand what were they talking about. And so whenever there is this specific sacrificial language, it takes us back there to really understand the fullness of what they were referring to, what what would have been awakened in the imagination of the New Testament readers is one way to think about it. So, yes, we still appreciate the sacrificial language. Flow that God established for the worship service. But we understand it now as Christians, as being fulfilled in Christ, and so we implement them in a Christ-centered way. So hopefully as we enter into these next three weeks, this will help you better understand the connection and the differences between worship in the early church in Israel and then our worship as New Covenant Christians. So... After the call to worship, as God first had the Israelites offer their sin or guilt offerings, the first thing that we do is the confession of sin. We are, as it were, wiping our feet at the door. And it becomes especially fitting to confess our sins when we understand last week's message, again, of what's happening in the Lord's Day service. And what's happening is that we are in God's very throne room in the holy congregation of the angels and the saints departed. And we're caught up in that. And when that happens, it's very clear that we need to confess our sins. John Calvin says it well in his Institutes when he writes, explaining why confession is necessary in the worship service, or at least why's. Seeing that in every sacred assembly we stand in the view of God and angels, in what way should our service begin, but in in acknowledging our own unworthiness? But this, you will say, is done in every prayer. For as often as we pray for pardon, we confess our sins. I admit it. But if you consider how great is our carelessness, or drowsiness, or sloth, you will grant me that it would be a healthy ordinance if the Christian people were exercised in being humbled by some formal method of confession, hence the confession of sin. Now what's true is the church throughout her history has always had confession as part of their liturgy. It was taken as a matter of course, that you would need to confess and be cleansed afresh whenever you entered the sanctuary of God. Of course, not in a salvific way. But it's only in recent history that the confession of sin in our corporate worship has been largely abandoned. This is a, a new thing in church history that we more often than not don't confess our sins as a people. And we see this especially as the church has veered more towards emotionalism, which makes sense Because if I'm going to church primarily for emotional or therapeutic expectations, the confession of sin becomes a buzzkill. Because it doesn't initially make me feel good, and it definitely doesn't appeal to seekers. But abandoning the confession of sin has been to our great detriment as a church. Because not only do we lose the grace of absolution that comes on the other side, but we are also in danger of losing our understanding of the majesty and the holiness and the grandeur of the God that we're actually worshiping when we don't humble ourselves. Which I would argue is precisely what has happened and is happening in evangelism, or excuse me, evangelicalism. In modern evangelicalism, true reverence and piety has become an endangered species. And in large measure, perhaps because of the tone of the service, the the engineered casualness and the engineered chipperness. Because when you lose the confession of sin, it's not long before you lose the fear of the Lord. And the service inevitably becomes more about the feelings of man rather than the holiness of God. And So we don't confess our sin as sin, and then we end up sanding down the rough edges of Scripture, right where we need to hear them the most, and censoring ourselves so that we don't ruffle many pagan feathers. Or we stop singing anthems that are worthy of the messianic monarch that we're actually worshiping, when the tone doesn't have any semblance of reverence and is primarily chipper. It's hard to have a proper view of God seated on his throne in all his glory when you don't have a right understanding of your unworthiness to be there apart from Christ. And yet, there stands this exhortation from Hebrews right in the middle of the New Testament to Christians when he says, and this is Hebrews 12, 28 through 29, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and with awe. For our God is a consuming fire. That's written to Christians. It's still the same God as Sinai. And what's true, friends? is if we could see with our physical eyes for two seconds the God that we stand before on the Lord's day, in all his holiness, full of grace and truth, you couldn't keep us from confessing our sins. Indeed, we would make a beeline to wherever cleansing could be found. We'd be so aware of them. For instance, Recall Isaiah's reaction when the Lord gave him a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. And, and remember, God is immutable, He does not change. And so the God we meet here is the living God. This is Isaiah 6. This is the sanctuary that we are in currently. So have, hold that in your mind as I read this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. I love that picture. I want the foundations of the thresholds here to shake when we sing. And the house was filled with smoke. And I, so this is Isaiah, I said, so Isaiah, a notably righteous man, considerably in his context. And I said, woe is me. And your sin has been atoned for. So that's that element right there. See, when we are outside of the sanctuary during the week, our sin isn't as striking to us because the world is so awash in the obscene and in the profane. Just thumbing through your newsfeed images and messages that would have scandalized The pious of old, even unsought, appear. We just kind of thumb on through, and then we go back five minutes later. When you're in the midst of the profane, your sin is not as obvious. But when we come into God's presence, we encounter the true, objective, holy. And when we are tried by that standard, every one of us instinctively knows we belong on our knees. Every one of us needs fresh forgiveness. Every one of us needs Jesus to wash our feet again at the sanctuary door. We don't need a bath. This isn't about being resaved at all. Of course, we just need our feet washed. Not unlike what Jesus said to the Apostle Peter in the upper room. Remember that part? So Jesus is washing feet and Peter said, you cannot wash my feet. Peter said, uh, Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. He said, well, then give me a bath. Wash my whole body. And Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need a bath except for his feet to be washed because he's already clean. That's us. So we're already clean, but we need our feet washed by Jesus. So after the call and the first song, after encountering the holy God in his throne room, and of course we... We can't see this now. We will one day behold Jesus Christ and the God of glory with our physical eyes. We don't see this right now, so this is by faith, and we do this on purpose. We recognize that we have sin to deal with, and so we do. We confess our sins through corporate confession, and then we humbly kneel for a time of silent confession of sin. And I want to speak about that silent confession of sin for just a moment so we understand what that's for. Obviously, we can't confess every sin during that space because we don't even know every sin. Even if I gave you an hour, you wouldn't be able to confess every sin. But that's not what that space is for. Exhaustive recounting is not what the Lord wants. It's not a time to dredge our soul for every vestige of sin. Rather, we are assuming a posture of humility before the king, recognizing that we have sinned. And so we come like our ancient fathers in Leviticus 9, bringing our guilt offering to God before we move on in the service. As Psalm fifty-one seventeen says, which is so fitting for this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart he will not despise. So very practically, my encouragement to you during the silent confession of sin would be name one, maybe two sins that you know you've committed and let those be as a sense kind of representative of I need forgiveness here and I recognize I need a lot more than that. But we aren't Martin Luther who before his discovery of justification by faith would spend hours in the confessional because he thought his forgiveness was tied to exhaustive confession. That's not true at all, friends. God is gracious. His instinct is compassion. He delights in us because of his son. But we do need to humble ourselves, but not dredge our souls. So that's not what we're talking about. It is more of a posture of contrition, confessing one or two. Anywhere the Spirit put a highlighter in that time, confess it, repent of it. Okay. So now I want to take a moment to answer an objection that some Christians have to having the confession of sin as part of the Christian's liturgy. Some pastors that I, I greatly admire don't think the confession of sin should be in the Christian's liturgy. And the objection goes like this. Jesus Christ already atoned for all of our sins once for all. That's, that's why he said, it is finished. That's what's so glorious about the new covenant. So the Christian service should be celebratory. And the confession puts an unnecessary damper on it. And I certainly understand that objection, and I know some people hold it genuinely. So by way of conclusion, I want to offer three quick responses To why I would say, no, the confession of sin is still still fitting for Christians. First, yes, praise be to God. Christ was the once and for for all sacrifice. Tetelestai is one of the sweetest words in the Greek language. Or is that Aramaic? Clint, you know. Either way, it's not English. But it means it is finished. It is paid in full. However, that does not mean that we stop sinning. And we won't until glory. And the New Testament never says that Christians should stop confessing their sin just because Christ already atoned for their sin. Again, 1 John 1, 8-10 is the clearest uh, example of this, which we had in the Confession of Sin time. It says, if we say, and this, he's speaking to Christians, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin." He's faithful, and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So even going back to the, we don't need to dredge, put that under that idea biblically. If you will confess your sin, he'll cleanse it all. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. That's to Christians. It's a serious mistake to think the finality of our atonement means we no longer need to, confess our sins. That's a disastrous conclusion in the Christian life for some of the reasons I've already addressed. And God commands us, so that's God speaking, he commands us to continuously confess our sins because, and this is secondly, we confess even as Christians, even though we're in covenant with God, because unconfessed, unrepented of sin still strains our fellowship with each other and with God. So we are in a living, active relationship with the living God. We are in fellowship with him. And when we sin and we don't confess our sins, it puts relational strain on this. And I'll just give one verse as an example where we see this dynamic playing out. This is 1 Peter 3.17. This is a case study, as it were. The text says, likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that's, that's the hook right there. You get that? So the text is not saying if you're a jerk to your wife, you'll lose your salvation. That's not what it says. But it says if you continue on in unacknowledged, presumptuous sin, your prayers will be hindered. (laughs) That's the relationship we have with God. It is real. Or listen to Psalm 66, 17 through 19. I cried out to him with my mouth and his praise was on my tongue. Now, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God surely has listened and he has heard my prayer. And so again, in both of those instances, that warning is to people who are already in the covenant. And we sin every day. So of course we should confess our sins at the start of the service. Of course we should throw open the windows of our souls and allow the stench of any stagnant sin to be blown out. So that a fresh wind of forgiveness and grace can then flow through. So it's fitting and it's right to confess our sin because We're commanded to, because unconfessed sin really does have an impact on our relationship. And three, finally, we should confess our sins because of the joy of weekly absolution. Sin always brings guilt and shame, which is a terrible burden that we know needs to be dealt with. And ever since the garden, our instinct when we sin is to flee and then make fig leaves to try to deal with the shame, and humans invent all kinds of ways to try to deal with it. Culturally, we try to deal with our shame by throwing pride parades and demanding affirmation and celebration for all of our sin. That's all fig leaves to try to cover shame. We try to deal with it in the church by blame shifting, by blaming our parents or blaming our spouses or our children or our siblings. We try to deal with our sin by self-deprecation, by just speaking bad about ourselves. Or we try to deal with it by by self-medicating on alcohol or lust or Amazon or any other way that we can get a dopamine hit. That is to say, we try to deal with it any way except the only way it can be dealt with. Because the only way one can actually remove the guilt and shame of sin is to go directly to the judge The only judge that can actually grant absolution is God Almighty based on the cross of Jesus Christ. And our pride resists this, but that's why pride is so deadly. It keeps us from accessing what we need most. Forgiveness. True, real, objective forgiveness decreed by the judge. And the door to forgiveness is a low door. You can only fit through on your knees. But on the other side of that door is the wide, expensive world of cleansing and fellowship and forgiveness. So every time we get on our knees, we end up standing much taller than we did before we did. And that's because the burden really has been dealt with. And it's because 1 Peter 5, 6 is true, which says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And at the right time, he'll exalt you. And friends, what's amazing about the Word of God is it is true. It is objectively true. The truth of God's Word does not depend on our subjective feelings of feeling forgiven. If we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. Fact. And if we confess our sins in Christ's name, God forgives us and cleanses us. Objective fact. The absolution is a fresh declaration from the king that you are forgiven. You are completely holy. You are completely righteous because of your union with the precious son. And just as the angels applied the coals to Isaiah's lips and cleansed him, so the blood of the son has been applied to us and has cleansed us all the way down. And what a joy it is to be confirmed in that again together weekly far from the confession being a buzzkill, at least for me, it's one of my favorite parts of the week because I know the word of God proves true. So children, I've written again a poem for you to help this perhaps land a little bit deeper. It's called The Sweet Cleansing of Confession. Our sin is the very reason why Jesus had to come and die. And when we put our trust in him, his blood covered every one of them. Yet we all still sin most every day through what we do and think and say. So confession is the perfect place to agree with God and then seek fresh grace. For though he's holy, he's oh so kind, quick to forgive and to renew our mind. We kneel, which could feel a little odd, but it's precious in the sight of God. It helps us know the weight of our sin and the joy of being forgiven. For after kneeling, we all stand to hear the words which silence every fear. Saints of God, hear this better word, this good decree from our good Lord. You are cleansed of sin when you confess, for you are clothed in Jesus' righteousness and all God's people said. And amen. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that this is true. We thank you that you are slow to anger, but you are abounding in steadfast love. We thank you for the promise upon promise upon promise upon promise of your inclination towards grace, of your eagerness to forgive, of the Father sprinting towards the prodigal son, abandoned, thrown to the wind, arms wide open, saying, I'm so thankful. I I love you, and I love to see you. And that's a picture of you towards us. You are always running towards us. And so, Father, I I pray that you would help us see these things rightly, that we would understand your holiness, and truly it would go deep, that we would be a reverent people with, with reverent joy, and we would understand your grace and your fatherly care, and that your face shines upon us because of Christ. And now we would pray the way our Lord taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors.